Remember, you can stay up to date on the latest news with the Irish Independent WhatsApp channel. On this week's Big Tech Show, when will cars safely drive themselves on our streets? And who in Ireland is providing the technology to help them do that? We talk to one of the country's biggest automotive autonomy entrepreneurs. I have BMW Drive Assist in my own vehicle and it is much, much safer because we are all prone to distraction, especially when we're on the motorway from Limerick to Dublin, for example. We've all been there where you actually forgot a whole section of the road. So I would say if you take it from a safety perspective and it does allow you to kind of relax. The Big Tech Show, available on all podcast platforms. This is the Rugby World Cup on the left wing. The interesting thing for us this week in conversation is probably not probably the result, but more so what the selection headaches are going to be, I think, heading into this weekend. There's a few ones now. I think Bundy a key. If you, but that is going to be interesting what they do selection-wise. I thought Johnny Sexton looked excellent for lar- large periods You know when he was on. Uh, hit the ground running as I expected, but you know, do you do you play in this weekend and save him for South Africa or vice versa? I, I don't know. I'm not. I'm, I'm torn on that. That's the real kind of discussions this weekend is what you do with your team, you know, because you have got such a short window to get ready for for the big games coming up. The opening weekend of Rugby World Cup 2023 is in the books and it did not disappoint from the opening night blockbuster between France and New Zealand to Ireland getting up and running against Romania and finally the curtain closer between Wales and Fiji. The first round of matches delivered excitement, intrigue and plenty of controversy. We will discuss it all on today's episode of the Left Wing Podcast. Will Slattery here with you and I'm delighted to be joined once again by Jonathan Bradley and Luke Fitzgerald. I'd also like to thank people for getting in touch on Twitter and Spotify with questions and comments and also for voting in our poll. A lot of you seem to agree with Luke that Ireland can go all the way at the World Cup, which is great. And we really appreciate you getting in touch with any more comments or, or questions you'd like us to cover. Not only myself, Jonathan and Luke, but Sinead, uh, Rory and Keane over in France as well. And we can get to as many as we can uh, throughout the show. But first now we'll reflect on the opening weekend and Jonathan and our bumper preview last week, we touched on plenty of talking points and, and a lot of them centering around that opening weekend and the various permutations for the pools and now that the kind of dust has settled a little bit uh, did it live up to the hype of, of an opening weekend of a World Cup for you? I thought it was a good weekend of rugby I enjoyed a good number of the games but like you know we sat here last week and we talked about is this the most open race for the uh, for the quarterfinals that we've ever had and essentially if you look at in terms of the Six Nations and the rugby championship teams everything sort of went along traditional lines you know Wales beat Fiji, England beat Argentina, South Africa beat Scotland. We sort of talked up an upset or what would have been seen as a traditional upset and we didn't get it. Yeah, I suppose at least Wales-Fiji delivered in terms of maybe the game of the weekend at the end. I know, I think all of us were maybe tipping Fiji to have a potential upset there, but it came up just short. Luke, yeah, Luke, what's your opinion on that, Luke? You know, obviously, a lot of the games ended up being, you know, somewhat one-sided. England-Argentina like was, was, you know, very, very one-sided. You know, obviously, West Fiji w- w- was quite entertaining, as I mentioned. Ireland-Romania, which we always knew would be one side it was. France-New Zealand, to be fair, I thought was a, was a really, really good curtain raiser. Obviously, the scoreline at the end was was quite, you know, maybe comprehensive in France's favour, but I thought it was an unbelievable game and atmosphere and all that. What, what do you make of the opening weekend as a whole before we kind of dig into it in a little more depth? Yeah, look, I think it was very pleasing. I think the uh, the quality of the rugby was good. I thought the... 
I suppose the concern I always have is maybe about that northern hemisphere, southern hemisphere split, where I just think the seasons are a little bit tilted in the southern hemisphere's favour. But that actually didn't really transpire, I don't think. I think the northern hemisphere teams are good, so they've made a good start to the competition where... Uh, maybe I was a little bit concerned about that. Um, I mean, it, interestingly enough, I think the biggest surprise of the weekend was the England game. Um, even though we had talked them up about having a, you know a lot of headroom to improve from where they are, just given the player pool that they have, they were coming in at such a low ebb. Not that Argentina shot the lights out, but there was a few results there in the in the championship where you thought, mm, do you know what, they should have enough to beat this England team. I personally thought England would have enough to get through the group. Uh, but just didn't see them winning on the weekend. So that was the biggest surprise, even though traditionally speaking, that was a fairly run-of-the-mill um, you know, win for, for England against Argentina at a World Cup. So, um, I mean, I think the curtain raiser, uh, New Zealand and uh, France, uh, did live up to its billing in some respects. I thought they would give them a little bit more trouble, but... You know, there was a lot of unsurprising aspects too. I thought that scrum, I mean, Antonio, they just didn't seem to have any answer there. A lot of, lot of struggles there. Um, New Zealand, I thought, had sorted out some of those handling errors that we saw last year against Ireland. You know, the way Ireland looked like a you know a better ball handling team than that New Zealand uh, side. That came back to haunt them. I mean, some of the opportunities that they kind of, they, they coughed up. Uh, very, very unusual, uh, uncharacteristic for New Zealand teams who generally are, you know, the best ball handlers going uh, and really can cut you apart uh, by just making very few errors. There was loads against France uh, in, in in that respect. And even, if, you know, the likes of Barrett, um, you know, some some uncharacteristic ones will. So they have some issues that I think they haven't resolved. I thought they had got, got a handle on them, but um, they, they look like they have a bit to go. Now, they have time in their group, but are they coming up against any teams where they are really going to be tested like they were against that, that French defence? I, I don't think so. So um, I think we still, now what it does do is it probably puts pressure on us. I think we need to win our group um, because I just don't think I'd like to play that French team. I think they're going to get better with a few bodies coming back uh, by quarter final time. Um, so and playing them at home, it just looks like a big ask. They look like they're they 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 were quite calm throughout that. I thought they finished the game comfortably ahead, um, and looked like if the game had got on further, I thought they would have beaten them by more. If you know what I mean, they, they that, that that the longer that game on, it wasn't helping New Zealand in my opinion. They look fit, they look strong defensively. They look pretty bar bar pretty poor start to the game. I thought they defended really really well, and they've got that weight at Maul and and and, um, and scrum time that I think will cause teams issues, um, barring probably South Africa. Uh, so you know. I think we do need, they're going to top their group. I think we need to top ours now as well if we want to uh, cross that uh, quarterfinal barrier. Yeah, just from an Irish perspective, Jonathan, before we kind of touch on some of the other matches, like what did you make of it as a first hit out? Um, like, did, it, did it kind of tick all the boxes you would have been expecting from what was always going to be a very kind of run-of-the-mill win in terms of the scoreline, but in terms of what Ireland get, got out of it? And then looking ahead to Tonga, were, were you pleased with, with kind of that kind of element of it? Yeah, I mean, apart from obviously going down after three minutes, it was... Uh, Shades of the old uh, San Marino, England in the in the early nineties there with uh, conceding the first try, but I think once Andy Farrell put out so strong a selection against the team that we knew we were going to be overmatched, that was what he needed to see. He needed to see his frontliners put Romania to the sword, and that's what we saw. We saw a good bit of bench impact in the second in the second half. I thought Ireland were pretty ruthless. They left. A number of chances out there, but I think they'll be relatively happy with their percentage of conversion of the opportunities that they created. 
And crucially as well, of course, um, no injuries. I mean, Romania, we sort of talked them down a wee bit last week. Obviously, they uh, they put everything into the game, but you could see that they were, you know, they were punctured by, by half-time, really, in that heat, and Ireland were able to just run away with them. It's not a statement win by any means, but the team did what they had to do, given the selection that Farrell put out, I think. Yeah, Jonathan, as you said, when you pick a team as strong as Andy Farrell did, it has to be a comprehensive win, or, or then it's going back to maybe Namibia in 2007 when you pick a strong team and it doesn't go quite as, as one-sided as you hope, and then all of a sudden maybe some doubt creeps in. But yeah, as you said, there was a lot of missed chances as well. It could have been a, a, over 100 points. To be fair to Romania, their goal-line defence at various times was actually very robust. I know Joe McCarthy got stonewalled a couple of times when he was probably home for a few handy tries. I think he did cross in the second half. Uh, Luke, like from your perspective, you know, it was such a turkey shoot, and it's kind of something I was going to touch on generally. That there's so, there's so many one-sided fixtures that we're going to be watching, especially this weekend. Like we have France, Uruguay, New Zealand, Namibia, Samoa, Chile, Wales, Portugal, and Ireland, Tonga, and South Africa, Romania. Like, is there anything to be gleaned from these games? Certainly, from a supporter's point of view, I would question the merit for for a lot of them, unless you're you know a diehard Ireland fan or a South Africa fan watching your team. But from the players themselves or the coaching staff, is there anything to be taken from such a one-sided match like that? Just don't get any injuries. No, look, I, I think the Ireland Tonga one probably is a little bit different to the rest of those fixtures. If you're if you're asking me honestly, that's the only one where you could see a possible some kind of banana skin. You know, I think unlikely. I think this Irish team, um, to touch on that performance, um, looked in in good health. Uh, looked like they got a bit of momentum together. Um, after Samoa, which was just a bit of a messy one, conditions weren't great, but they didn't execute on lots of things. And I thought they they righted a few of those wrongs and looked like now they're in, in a good position to get a bit of momentum before that South Africa match, which we're all obviously watching very, very keenly. Um, I think you're right, though. I think look, that's a rugby's challenge. It's why I'm always going on about the, you know, the the, the player, the the foreign player ruling. Uh, I was really pleased to see the kind of amendment that comes into play that does help the Pacific Island nations because you think you do want you want your World Cup to be look even in the in in the football World Cup there's probably really only four or five teams that are generally going to win it but there's lots of times where there is an upset and games are a little bit closer there's a bit of a sweaty finish for them and um, that just won't happen enough in rugby it's a smaller game it doesn't have the spread and I think um, and a weekend like this probably does highlight that will and. Um, but I do think they are trying to make some, make it a little bit adaptable, make some of the smaller teams have a bit more of a chance. They've obviously improved the schedule for them from previous World Cups as well, which is very helpful. Um, so, yeah, look, it is. It's, it's a weekend for the diehards, Will. There's no doubt about that. Ireland should be watching it pretty closely, though. I think if they take Tonga too lightly, there's plenty of players there. As Fiji showed a couple of weeks back against England, uh, these these countries have some absolutely outstanding athletes, um, and you know they generally come together at a World Cup for one big performance. Um, we need to make sure we're not that big performance, and we're we're you know we play to our potential and treat them with the respect they deserve, and make sure we're ready for a very very physical contest. Because if you're not, you know, aside from you know the you know taking a risk that you're going to lose the game. I think you also risk, um, you know, a few injuries and things like that. If you're not physically up for the game, um, you know, uh, you, that that does kind of creep in. So um, the interesting thing for us this week in conversation is probably not probably the result, but more so what the selection headaches are going to be, I think, heading into this weekend. There's a few ones now. I think Bundy if you I know we're probably going to cover a little bit later on, but that is going to be interesting what they do selection-wise. I thought Johnny Sexton looked excellent for lar- large periods, you know, when he was on, uh, hit the ground running as I expected. But, you know, do you... 
do you play in this weekend and save him for South Africa or vice versa? I, I don't know. I'm not, I'm, I'm torn on that. I know we'll cover it a bit more, but that's the real kind of discussions this weekend is what you do with your team, you know, because you have got such a short window to get ready for, for the big games coming up. Yeah, Jonathan, what's your view on the Johnny Sexton selection debate? Obviously, as Luke mentioned, he looked you know razor sharp uh, against Romania. You know, there's questions of whether he should be rested entirely against Tonga or start or come off the bench. Like, would an hour against Romania, a team, probably one of the worst teams at the tournament, is that really a, a sufficient enough build-up to South Africa and even taking into account how good he looks? Like, surely maybe the Tonga would be the ideal step up in terms of intensity just to get him really battle-hardened obviously running a risk of a potential injury, but, you know, these are, I suppose, the debates are being weighed up. How, how do you view it? Exactly that. Well, like, I th- I actually find the debate, um, I'm surprised by how many people think Sexton shouldn't play in this game. Like, he's had 65 minutes against a team that we have said is one of the worst teams in the tournament over the last six months. Like, look, I know you sort of called this throughout the summer that you expected to see him hit the ground running and that he didn't need that sort of game to build back in. So it was interesting to see how comfortable he looked out there against Romania, just how seamlessly he slotted back in. But I do still think that you're talking about Romania. Like there is a step up in intensity from Romania to Tonga and to South Africa. The step up in intensity from Romania to South Africa is massive. And like, let's face it, Nobody thought that Japan were going to beat Ireland at the last World Cup. Ireland went into that game without Johnny Sexton. And whatever you want to say about the preceding Six Nations, whatever you want to say about the warm-ups, that was the moment that the wheels came off the road and they never got back on in that World Cup. So start Sexton, win the game, take him off when the game's won. But Tonga are a live proposition. Like, a smattering of ex-All Blacks coming in. Like, this isn't akin to some of the other games that we're going to see across the weekend. If Ireland aren't on it, as we saw against Samoa, if Ireland aren't on it, this can turn into a game very, very quickly. So I just think there's numerous arguments for starting Sexton, regardless of the one main argument, I suppose, of not starting him that is uh, the risk of injury. But I think there's an awful lot of different factors at play that make me think that it should be a no-brainer that he starts. It's a good point you make about the Japan game. I was actually having a conversation with someone very recently about this. I I think because the World Cup generally was at the debacle last time, and as you mentioned, the whole year was quite poor. It's kind of been lost in the shovel how like outrageously bad that defeat was in terms of how Ireland coming into that game after after hammering Scotland and just laying a complete goose egg. Like, and it, it just I feel like it kind of gets overlooked in terms of it's one of the worst defeats, if not the worst defeat Irish rugby has ever suffered. No, like a hundred a hundred percent. Like because people forget how comfortably Ireland beat Scotland and how positive things were having beat Scotland. And then the fact that the whole thing essentially imploded with Johnny Sexton, who then as now is your most important attacking player. And he was watching the whole thing unfold from the stands. Yeah, Luke. What, so what, like after Jonathan's points there and some of the other things, like what way would you look? You've been very much advocating strongest team selection, uh, you know, after what happened at the end, the back end of the club season with Leinster and Munster. Like, so I presume... You're going to go down that line, or what do you think? Yeah, I don't think they've got a choice. I think you have to, um, in my opinion. Um, I just think, um, you know, you, you got to put teams to the sword at this stage. you got to take a chance that people are going to get injured. I, I feel like they've got enough depth as well. You're obviously going to miss someone like Johnny Sexton, but they have two good players behind them. Um, we've got to have that big country mindset. You know, you look at South Africa with with, uh, with Libok and their 
they just back them. You know, they they I think they accept the flaws. They accept they're not going to be the same as a Pollard, and, and and they just get on with it. There was no moaning from Khaleesi in the in the interview after. I don't know if you saw that. Um, you know, I think you've got to have that. New Zealand did the same thing. You know, when they won their their home World Cup, uh, you know, down to Stephen Donald. I think you just have to you have to take the risk and you have to play it like you're a big nation and go out and try and whoop every single team. I think there's also a strong case for being battled hardened a little bit towards the end of the competition. You know, Johnny should well be able to get through all those games because you know he's he's played very little rugby. You know, pretty much all year. He's a great trainer, keeps himself in great shape. Um, and they've got two, as I said, able deputies behind him who obviously are not the same, but still put out a good product. And I think a good enough product that Ireland could get through the likes of a Scotland. So I would be taking the risk, making sure there's no mess ups, breeding confidence, momentum into South Africa, which I think now is a crucial, crucial game for Ireland, because I think you want to get New Zealand badly versus getting France, if I'm being honest, just from what I saw. Um, New Zealand suit us so much more. And I think if we can beat all the remaining teams in the group, um, we get over that hoodoo. Uh, a little bit easier uh, in the quarterfinal. Yeah, we've actually got a good few comments in around team selection. Sean and Limerick was advocating, much like Munster at the end of the season, going with their strongest team. And James and Connor about asking if, if maybe it was worthwhile resting a couple of guys this weekend with a view to, to maybe South Africa or even resting players against South Africa. Jonathan, in terms of the overall team selection, Johnny aside, like what way do you expect them to go? Because there has been, as we've talked before, there's been a noticeable drop-off in the team's overall performance levels when there's even been maybe six, seven changes. The Samoa game obviously is the most recently one and the most comparable one given, you know, they're, you know, they're somewhat similar sides in terms of the, the X-Factor players they have and their physicality. Like, would you, would you be, would you, would you be expecting any file to go with a kind of a Samoan style team selection? I would think probably a little bit stronger than, than that. I think, if we look at what we saw against Romania as, say, something of a stronger team than we were expecting, but still with a couple of alterations, you know, Mac Hansen wasn't meant to be even in the 23. I think if you're basing off the summer and really the last year, like Mac Hansen's a crucial, crucial player for you. So I think, you know, we see him get a run. Josh van der Flyer on the bench, he probably comes in. If Gary Ringrose is fit to play, which we're hearing that he is, I think you probably see... Him get a run, probably at the expense of uh, Gary Ringrose, who then can be put uh, put on ice for South Africa. So I do think we'll see a degree of looking ahead to that South Africa game, but very much with uh, a selection that understands, appreciates, and uh, acknowledges the fact that Tonga are a good side. Mm. Yeah, I don't think you can underestimate the break week and the importance of it. Like, they do get a break after South Africa, Luke. So, like, as you said before, there's no reason why they can't rock up three weeks in a row with a very strong team, take the week off then to recharge the batteries, you know, get the bodies back, you know, in top shape, and then go again for the real kind of, you know, kind of, I suppose, pedal to the metal, finish to the tournament. Yeah, and you'd be kind of thinking it'd be similar to, like, a a Six Nations type uh, finish whereby you might have, you know, Italy to start and then you've got, you know, a big fixture, a break week, big fixture, break week, and then two to finish. Uh, not exactly the same, of course, but that's probably how you'd, be th- you'd, you'd go about thinking it. And you think this Irish team is well able to go and do that uh, and put in big minutes with their with their front liners, provided obviously no one gets injured. Um, look, I had been a big advocate at the time, I think, or possibly, um, you know, resting a few guys uh, in that South Africa match Probably based on that toll that November took, there was five kind of key guys. It's such a such a physical match, um, you know. And I, I just felt maybe France might have nicked a scalp uh, on on opening or sorry, New Zealand might have nicked a scalp on the opening night. You know, just injuries and different things like that. 
that was nowhere to be seen. So I, I've changed my tune a little bit, and I do think uh, they've got to go, you know, got to give everything in that South Africa match. And I do think the break week might be absolutely key at that juncture for this team. Um, so, yeah, look, we wait and see. Uh, I, I think Jonathan's right. You, you've got to give this team the respect they deserve and go out and abs- and put a, put a score on them, you know. I, I think that's really, really important for them to do. I think they want to get the confidence up. They want to, you know, I, I think... You know, everyone was kind of a little bit scared after that South Africa, uh, you know, second half. Uh, they look pretty formidable with those guys coming on. But I think Ireland are well well equipped to go and, and deal with that, uh, given the, the squad they have. So, uh, put a, you know, put in a really good performance, comprehensive, get guys, key guys more minutes and go, you know, give everything for that South Africa match to try and get top of the group. I, I think that's really, really important. I haven't seen that uh, opening fixture of the, of the tournament. Yeah, just before we get on to Scotland and South Africa, Jonathan, one player I'd like to ask you both about actually is Joe McCarthy. Obviously, you know, as I touched on him there, you know, kind of got a little unlucky he didn't pick up a few more tries, but he really put himself about. Like he was disruptive at line out of Mall. He, you know, just carried well, was just a constant, he was constantly busy. He was always on my TV screen and felt, you know, get, getting involved. Is he now a live option, Jonathan, do you think, for that, excuse me, uh, 23 for, this, for the South African game? Yeah, I think he is definitely. Like, this is what I was writing about on Sunday. Like, the place that Andy Farrell has the sort of depth that is the envy of probably 18 of the other 19 coaches, uh, maybe 17 of the other 19 coaches at this tournament, is those back five forwards. So if you're looking at it, Jack Conan hasn't played yet, but you know Jack Conan is a British and Irish lion. You've got Josh van der Flyer, World Player of the Year. You've got Peter O'Mahony, who was the uh, the official player of the match against Romania, Caelan Dorris, who is one of the best players in the world in his position. You've got Ian Henderson, two-time Lion. You've got James Ryan, who's so, so important to what Ireland do. And you've got Tyg Byrne. And that's before you add Joe McCarthy into this mix. So Ryan Baird as well. So, you know, there's a real possibility that two of those people that we've named don't even make the 23 for South Africa. A lot of that sort of added competition that we see, I think, is down to the emergence of Joe McCarthy, who I've been really, really impressed by the latter half of last season, especially so in the summer games, because I think it is easy to sort of overlook the fact that whenever that squad was first named, there was no sort of sense that Joe McCarthy was definitely, definitely going to this World Cup, but he played so well in those warm-ups that he basically ended the debate around his selection. And then I thought he was really, really good against Romania as well. He will, obviously, I assume, have got a fair amount of stick about getting put in the touch by the fullback. But if we take that out of it, like it was a really, really good performance. A mature performance, I thought, as well. I think that's fair to say in what was his World Cup debut. You know, we're talking about a guy that has fewer than 30 professional games under his belt. And the profile of Joe McCarthy as well is something that obviously lends itself to playing the box but like I wouldn't want to be Andy Farrell having to make that decision because you know do you leave Ian Henderson out of the team do you leave Ian Henderson out of the 23 how do you get Tyg Byrne in I don't think you can change the back row at this point I think the Omahani van der Flyer, Doris back row is established as is so it's going to be a horses for courses selection I think but it is also going to be very very difficult I think for Andy Farrell to tell whoever it is that that they're not in the team or, as we say, potentially not even in the squad. Jonathan, do you think the question becomes, though, you mentioned how suited he might be towards a South African match. 
it, it, does the real question come about, about about the bench? Is that where is that where McCarthy kind of throws? For, for sorry, I'm obviously. I'm obviously giving up my opinion. I I I think if if they go with the six split against us, six two split, McCarthy becomes a very live option there for you now because he is in form. He's very physical. He could be exactly what this Irish team need, particularly if you're trying to support a front rower or a front row that are going to be coming under pressure with those South African kind of that that, that South African wave that seems to come in at about fifty minutes. Any thoughts on that? Yeah, I think that's exactly what I would be leaning towards. Look, I think I would start James Ryan and Henderson and I think I would have McCarthy and Byrne on the bench. Now, that does leave Baird and Jack Conan out of the 23 and those are very good players not to have in your match day 23, but I think that's what I would do. I think there's a real chance it's what Farrell does, but it's a testament to what Joe McCarthy has shown over the last, say, six months, that we're having this conversation about two players that he would have certainly been seen as starting considerably behind, that we're now talking about leaving them out of the 23 for what is, until we get to the quarterfinals, the biggest game in the World do, Cup. Do you not include one of them on the bench if you're going with a 6-2 split yourself? Yeah, I think, yeah, that would happen if you're going to go 6-2. You have to go Crowley then. See, Crowley then becomes your key guy because he can play, he's a bit of a Swiss, bit more of a... A Swiss Army knife uh, than say the likes of Byrne, uh, who's obviously more experienced, a bit more probably of a steadier hand at this stage. Um, but Crowley looks good to me. Uh, he he can play a few more positions if you get an injury. You obviously take a big risk. You know you can play someone like uh, see I, I think maybe a Baird might be able to play in the wing for 10-15 minutes if he got really stuck. It, it's really not ideal. Maybe you go with Van der Flyer there to 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 the wing or something like that. You know. Peter O'Mahony he did it once before, didn't he? He's done it once before as well. Probably a bit earlier in his career, but you know what I mean? These are the kind of things that you have to think through. We obviously have an issue in that sex. And look, just given his age profile, injury profile, you're taking a massive, massive risk in that, in that if you get another injury somewhere else, like who can fill in? Um, you probably, it probably means you have to pick Murray on the bench, definitely, because he could, if you were really stuck, probably playing in, in an outside position as well or somewhere else, maybe a 10 if you were really stuck. If South Africa are taking the risk, I wonder, do you, do you match up and try and take the risk yourself? Um, intriguing enough, I think. I think McCarthy you know, could be the answer to Ireland's problems in terms of dealing with that extra weight and power that South Africa would be bringing onto the pitch. Um, yeah, uh, it's interesting though, isn't it? I, I mean, I wonder, like, they, South Africa really do throw up these questions to you, Will. Yeah, but as you mentioned, like when you list out the back five forwards there, the idea of having three of them to come off the bench in the second half, kind of fighting fire with fire, is very, very attractive. I just don't see Andy Farrell going down that route, even though I actually think it's a good idea. Just because he, I don't think he's ever done that, unless someone, when he, either of you can correct me, he has traditionally picked a centre as the 23. Like you could have Robbie Henshaw as a number 23, you could make a big impact potentially, but that does become a very enticing prospect the, the, the 6-2 split the kind of the Irish bomber squad and to be fair when you list those guys that is a very formidable like bomber squad quote unquote as in I'd put that up against the, the subs coming off the bench by anyone bar South Africa like even the French bench at the weekend good players but with the injuries they have I would take the, the guys we've listed there in terms of you know impactful second half substitutions Jonathan what do you make like do you think the 6-2 the split is a possibility or you know given Annie Farrell's history is that kind of unlikely would you say I just think because of the history, that's why I do think it is unlikely because he hasn't been tempted to do it before. Um, personally, for all those reasons that you guys have said, I would be very, very tempted to do it on this occasion. But then the danger is obviously, and it's a sod's law type thing, that you do get that 
early injury. We saw it with France during the Six Nations and, you know, they ended up essentially negating DuPont because they had to move uh, they had to move DuPont to 10. So you're costing yourself the best number nine in the world in, in that. Now, that was a terrible decision. T- talk about the Japan game being underratedly bad. That was one of the, that's the worst <laughs> coaching decision I have ever seen. He's lucky he won the top 14 through Intermax moment of magic or he might have been handed a P45 at the end of the year. No, hundred percent. Sorry, I said I said France. I meant uh, I meant to lose. Yeah. So I think that is just a, a sort of high-profile illustration of the dangers of it. But you're not going to out South Africa, South Africa. But I think you have to do something to combat it. It's not taken away from what you do and not taken away from what you are. But you have to be, I suppose, pragmatic about it and say South Africa are offering something that nobody else in world rugby does. But I do think that Ireland are well placed to combat it in comparison to other teams. Like, yeah, I agree 100%. You, you mentioned France there. I actually don't think France do have the same depth options now with the few injuries that they've had in those back five forwards as Ireland do. And this is why Andy Farrell gets paid the big bucks because he's the one that's going to have to make the call of whether you... Uh, it's a tempter, isn't it? It's a tempter. Yeah. It's a tempter. It's an interesting one. It feels a very un-Irish decision. It's it's placing maybe placing massive importance on um on that top spot. It's going okay. Let, let's let's give this a, a you know a shot. Now your your problem is that I think there's probably a few guys in this Irish backline who might have mightn't have great injury profiles. So that's why probably why I don't think you do that. You know Gary has a, a you know a few niggly bits. Uh, you know obviously Johnny there. Um, you know, so there's a few other guys you're concerned. You know what? We just can't risk it. It's too big a risk to like. Let's just back what we've always done. Uh, we beat them in November. Nothing's changed as regards their place kicking options, which was their real issue. Their Achilles heel against us. We did come under pressure against the bomb squad, but we were able to manage it. So it's just. It's, I just thought I'd throw that one in there as uh, just as, as a bit of a you know a tester to see what other people were, were were thinking about it and if you thought it might be a live option. Just just given how well he's playing and just his physical attributes, you know. Yeah, no, it's definitely a good debate. I like how Jonathan put Ian Henderson straight into the team. I knew there was ne- that was never any danger of Jonathan not picking Ian Henderson in the starting team. I don't think. Two time lion, you know, we're t- we're talking about somebody that uh, you're talking about combat in South Africa, Ian Henderson. Yeah, but to me, said, plen- plen- to me, you pick him. plenty of options there. Let's just talk about that Scotland South Africa game then, because obviously at halftime, six three, Scotland get two scrum penalties. They're going and feeling good about life. You know, you know, texting a few people at halftime, being like, "God, it's set up to be a great second half." But from the moment the second half kicked off, there was a complete another sea change, and South Africa were just so so dominant. Like, Luke, what did you, what did you make of the power in the second half and just the way they went about their business and getting the job done? It was quite kind of ominous and intimidating by the end of the game. Yeah, the 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 word I thought of was squeeze. Just squeeze the life out of you, you know that kind of way. Just that uh, that power, that strength. Um, you know, they can. There's not many teams that can deal with that muscle. I just don't think they they very well organized. They're very smart too and creative at times when they need to be. Um, and uh, as I always say about South Africa, like the the good thing for them, uh, you know, given the physical attributes they have, is they don't actually have to be unbelievably creative a lot. Um, you know, a few times during the match is enough when you've got that kind of power. Um, and the game plan is quite easy to execute. Um, the one thing I would say is the place kicking. I, I do think there'll be a team where that that, that may become an issue for them. They'll, they'll, they'll come unstuck somewhere unless they, they, they pick someone to do that. Um, 
you know, I think Libok has enough around the pitch for them. Um, but just you, you know, whether they need to go to Faf or I don't know what they need to do, they need to figure out something there because that that, that can't go on. You can't have guys duck hooking it out there. You know what I mean in uh, in, in the World Cup in a big match because uh, those kicks aren't going to get easier as the competition goes on. They're going to get harder in terms of pressure. Um, so while they were able to cover it up now, I think. I think that'll become a problem for them against a real team. And uh, I think Ireland are a real team. So we wait and see on that one um, uh, and whether they figure that out or whether he just improves uh, as time goes on. As I said, my 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 inkling is that in a World Cup, if you're, if you're having a problem with your place kicking at the start, I don't think you're going to have rectified it by the end unless you're very, very experienced in international level. And it's a... You know, it's a technical point, and you have you know a Dave Allred coming into camp saying, "Listen, look, this is what's happening here. Um, you know, you need to just tweak this slightly, and you get something fixed." Um, I don't, I, I never think it gets easier as this competition goes on. Yeah, ironically, uh, France are employing a South African guy, Vlock Silliers, as their kicking coach at the moment, like very highly regarded. I'm sure South Africans would love to have him in their camp. And you touch on the Sia Khaleesi kind of press conference, to be fair, it was an unbelievably passionate response and backing his team. But at the same time, I was like, "See it, see it." Libok is a shocking kicker. Like, you know, you can defend him all you want and you sound very captaincy and leadershipy, but at the same time, Jonathan, like, it could be a major issue. Like, his no-look kick, and as Luke touched on there, it's a good point. They're so powerful that they don't often have to be creative. But even in that World Cup final where everyone looks back on it as a scrummaging and, you know, the, the, how they squeeze him there. But the game was still only six points in it when they had two moments of magic. You know, Am's no-look pass for the Mipimpi try and Colby sidestepping. So even in that game when they were really dominant and powerful, they still required those little glimpses that they can get from Arenza and Colby to get the job done. That's what makes them such a formidable team. Yeah, 100%. And I actually think that, uh, you know, you mentioned Arm there. I think his injuries have been really uh, downplayed. We've been so focused on uh, Pollard, largely because of the goal-kicking situation and because of uh, what we've seen from Manny Libick through the ERC and through his South Africa Cups. But we haven't really spoken about how they might miss the creativity of Arm whenever they get to uh, to the latter stages of this competition. But, you know, you, you mentioned those two scrum penalties that South Africa got. And you could see the impact of those and you could see the bench readying themselves and you saw those guys come on and it completely turned the tide because it's for the reasons that we've just been talking about in relation to Ireland. Like they can bring on what is the equivalent of a second choice front row that would be anybody else's first choice. That's the depth that they have. They saw that something was going awry in that first half in terms of the set piece that they obviously didn't like and they just bring on a world-class front row en masse and change the tide of the scrum. And then they've worn Scotland down essentially through how attritional that first half was. Like, you know, you say 6-3, it might sound like it wasn't uh, it wasn't a great game or whatever, but it was. Uh, I thought it was pretty captivating just in terms of the physical toll of it, how uh, attritional it was, the South African defence. And then I think really for Scotland... They're looking back at two big moments, and it's the the non red card for Jesse Creel, and it's the uh, the Darcy Graham try. And I'd focus more on the Darcy Graham try in relation to what we're looking at from Ireland, because South Africa give you so few opportunities that when they allow something like that, you really have to take it. And we saw how big it was in that game that Scotland didn't manage to do that. Yeah, and it actually the, the Darcy Graham missed chance was very reminiscent of I think of Ireland's second try 
in the Aviva Stadium last November. I think it was Gibson Park made the break. I'm only thinking about it now, so forgive me. My details are a little foggy. Someone made a big break up the middle, but they put Mark Hansen away into the corner. I could have gotten all those players wrong, but it looked the, sa- it looked the same when I, when I watched that moment. And as you mentioned, that kind of sums up Scotland, the frustration sometimes. They do so well. It was such a lovely bit of back play. Like, the passing was crisp until it got to Darcy Graham and he could have put Duham van der Merwe potentially away. Um, Luke, what did you make of South Africa's traffic light system that's getting a lot of attention? The flashing lights, the disco lights up in the coach's box. Jack Aber, soon to be Leinster coach, could be coming to the RDS uh, soon enough, saying that it's nothing to do with tactics, that it's about, you know, looking about injuries and deciphering potential injuries. I'd be dubious enough about that. But, for, you know, you played in a lot of big games. Like, would you like to look to the coach's box and have Joe Schmidt, like, you know, flashing different colours to, to get messages on? No, I don't really remember any situations where we had a, a decision that was that crucial. And I think you're always better off. I think the best coach has always said, like, whatever the decision on the field is, like, just commit to it 100%. And I think having that little bit of doubt about what you're doing. Look, maybe maybe it's it's nice to have someone who's kind of a bit calm and cold sitting in a coach's box, looking at the stats, having a feel for the game there. But I still, my sense is always that the people on the pitch have the best feel for what's going on. Um you know, you can kind of sense, you know, particularly if you're, you know, if your captain's a forward, you can sense how the scrum is going. You can feel how the mall is going. You can, you can hear the, the crunch in the bodies. Are, are they still fresh? Do the legs still feel fresh? Is the scrum, can you hear heavy breathing in the scrum? Uh, can you see heads go down? They're all kind of body language things that are hard to pick up um, when you're not on the pitch. Uh, and I always think it's best to have a captain. If you have a great captain, um, you know, with lots of experience and a good feel for the for how the game is going, which I think, if I think about Ireland, like Sexton always has a great feel for those things. I always felt he knew when to go for the, he knows when to go for the juggler. Um, you're not, not going to get every decision right, but I would rather have had him making the decision than, than say, a Joe Schmidt and some of the team, just to refer to my own career, uh, or a Brian O'Driscoll or a Jamie Heastup or a Leo Cullen. Give those guys the, the chance to to have that knowledge that they picked up throughout the game, the feeling that you have in the rooks and the tackles and they're all these little bits. You do get a sense of how the game is going and the momentum of it down there versus on, up, up high. I think a better one um, from having spectated and played. So that's my own view on it. I'd rather have the captain do it and not undermine from 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 above. I did see one theory where they were talking about maybe whether it was, uh, I think it was put forward by a South African, but whether it was just letting players know whether they were within their kicking range or not which I think is interesting because one of my big pet peeves across this entire weekend was people taking penalties that they were never, ever going to be able to kick. <laughs> Libok took one from, like, the halfway line and, and like... Yeah. Yeah, but he took one from, hard, front like. the, from front of the post on the 22. It's it's not a gimme, so I'm not <laughs> sure he's a great example. <laughs> but, but, like, Elliot Daly was the same. So you're taking penalties that are, what, at best, like, a 25% chance because you can get them the distance, but you can't aim them. So, in like, in what world is that a better opportunity for three points to then instead of kicking down the corner like it just makes no sense I mean it's one of those things that like you would think in 2023 when everything is analyzed to death somebody would have said no pop the ball into the corner yeah but I suppose if you have the option or if you can if you can kick it long enough um, you know I suppose you have that option of you know getting that that drop kick back with a good chase you know what I mean you're probably thinking then it's it's almost like that fourth or well, probably the fifth set piece now after the uh we probably think of the kickoffs and that yourself but um you know i think you're probably looking at a rook between the 10 and the 22 not the worst place to have it i do get the point about you know if you can stick it inside the 22 there in a penalty but you know the three points the option of the three points if it's low percentage and you're thinking you're going to get uh you know a, a kickoff back to you that you're getting a, a midfield rook 
uh, between the 22 and the 10. I'm assuming someone with the stats has said, look, it's probably worth taking a pop, even if it's on the edge, provided you do get the distance on it. Just a thought, maybe, I don't know. I'm not. You, you could be right, Jonathan. Just initially, when you say that there, that's my, my initial thoughts. Yeah, they're always up to something, the, the Springbok. You know, <laughs> they're always up to something. And even their explanations about it, as I said, were very dubious. Just two things on them before we, we move on to the, another talking point. Even Etzebert's injury, you know, could be massive. I think Rosie Erasmus said it's a seven to ten day injury, they think. They play Ireland, I think, in like 12 days' time. So, you know, he could potentially be ruled out of that game or, or, or maybe not fit. And if he is ruled out, I still think we could see, you mentioned the Am. Am and or Pollard, I would not be surprised if they are brought back in at some stage in this tournament. If there's any injuries and Libox kicking is still wayward, Pollard, I think, would 100% be brought back into the squad as well. If there's a, Obviously, that would be requiring some player to get injured, but the law of averages said in a World Cup, you generally get two or three per team. So that's something to potentially uh, look out for. And Jonathan, you mentioned the Jesse Creel incident then, you know, that, that he wasn't punished for. Tom Curry was for a similar incident. You know, a lot of people were talking about Matthew Carley's performance in the Wales-Fiji game, the amount of kind of penalties Wales conceded without giving. Even Alan Wynne jones on Virgin Media had to reluctantly admit that uh, potentially they were a little fortunate not to get the yellow card. A lot of kind of focus on officiating across the opening weekend, which is never a good place to be. What's your kind of thoughts on on some of those incidents and just kind of the the frustration that, that we are kind of having to focus on so many of them. Yeah, I mean, the frustration is the inconsistency, I suppose. So you're looking at a couple of those uh, instances of upright tackles with uh, with Jesse Creel with Dan Bigger that uh, didn't get referred and obviously like Creel hasn't been uh, hasn't been sanctioned so they've looked at that and said it said that it's fine and then you look at the Tom Curry one like I, to me the Tom Curry one was a red card like a fairly straightforward red card like I was watching on one ITV obviously so I had uh Clive Woodward and Lawrence Delalio and Johnny Wilkinson all telling me that it treat. wasn't a red card. That was a great <laughs> That uh, there was mitigation because of his change of direction. But like, unless they thought he was going to float there in the air, I don't understand. Like, what goes up must come down. Like, he was always going to come down into that space and he got hit in the head. So for me, it was a red card. But there were obviously a few others that uh, I think were very, very similar in terms of where the contact was made. And then, yeah, I mean, you mentioned... You mentioned Matthew Carley and like the one thing that I think none of us really wanted to be talking about after the first weekend of the World Cup was officiating and problems with the officiating, but um, that was tough to watch. Like. Yeah, there is a sense, Luke, that's always been a sense that some of the smaller teams, the tier two teams, don't get the same kind of, I suppose, officiating rub of the, not even rub of the green, because they were st- like, that's three pen- there's a reason the baseball have a three strike rule that's been adopted pretty much in terms of people talking all over the world because three strikes is enough when you should really be punished it was four i think and then they got a warning uh, against against uh, wales which that just seems wrong that just seems blatantly wrong given they were all on the line Ah, look, it was poor. Like, like I have a view on these things that I think they're way too soft. I think even if you score the try, you know, you should be coming back to, to penalise guys. Um, you know, and, and I think um, that was really disappointing. I actually thought France got away with a little bit close at the very start of the game just because it was the start of the game. There was two penalties there, uh, you know, not back 10 on, a, on an Aaron Smith thing as well. There was just some, some stuff that I, I think you need to be really harsh on on that part of the pitch. I think we've decided... Well, I think we've all decided that, that we want that, you know, that that's a good part of the game, that, you know, if, if teams are being 
you know, uh, cynical around that that part of the pitch that you'd be ruthless on them. Uh, there's definitely something there as well with Fiji. I think they needed to be a bit more assertive and put a bit more pressure on the referee. We don't want to see that either, but that's that's just how the game is played at the moment. I hate that I have to say that, um, but that's also been some of the rhetoric that's come out over the weekend is that they were probably a little bit too respectful of the referee um, and didn't let him get on with his job because sometimes you just have to take, you have to put a, a, you know, a word in there and like say, listen, we are we're we're counting this even if you're not you're on number two here you know then you know are, are you watching this just even a, a software the, the richie mccall style where you know just a quick little you know sentence there just to, to mark the card and say look you know we're on number two here you know when are you gonna when are you gonna take action here um very poor officiating very disappointing uh you know particularly for fiji uh i thought they probably had enough there to to win that game it was a super game um but it's it's really disappointing to have to talk about a referee again with a tier two nation really um you know not ha- having having come off the worst of it and um yeah look there's nothing that can be done about it now we just got to try and learn about it I think he'll get a lot of stick for it hopefully other referees will take note we obviously have a big weekend of action this weekend you'd love to see one of those t- those nations run a big nation close um and you'd hate again for it to, to for a referee to be part of the conversation hopefully lesson learned after round one will. Yeah, well, Fiji play Australia this weekend, so their tournament could be over after two weeks. And you know, obviously, they'll look back on some of the officiating decisions. Jonathan, one thing about the bunker, which I just want to ask you about and see what you think, is obviously I watched that England-Argentina game on television as well. And while it might speed up the game, which is obviously welcome, not really getting the full picture of why decisions are being made. Like, so the, the block down from uh, Carreras, you know, who jumped up like CJ Stander back in the day against uh, Pat Lambie and kind of flattened George Ford, like... I would love to have heard what the rationale was for giving it a yellow. Maybe it's the right one, but I, I was kind of in the dark. You just get the one sentence kind of summation from the referee when he comes back. It's a little confusing, and I haven't actually been to a stadium yet where it's been used. So I'd be, I'd say if I, you were in the crowd, you wouldn't have a clue what was going on as well. Like a couple of issues, maybe unintended consequences perhaps of the bunker system they're using. There was certainly, I think, an element of confusion with the yellow card because you could tell even just from the, the pictures into the crowd that people thought, that those were yellow cards. Like, I don't think even in a wider sense, people have really caught on to the fact that the bunker thing is in play in the stadium. But you're 100% right. Actually, a friend of mine texted me exactly the same thing about that uh, Carreras collision, that it was the CJ Stander incident from South Africa just replayed. I think you get an awful lot of leniency, and we've seen this in recent months, that you get an awful lot of leniency if you're trying to charge down a kick, but it doesn't make it any less dangerous. And I think we do need that explanation, whether it be live in real time or whether it be afterwards because there is this sort of grey area and the best example of it was in that England and Argentina game where the incidents sort of overlapped so you had these two yellow cards at the same time and you were waiting to see whether one, both or none was going to be upgraded to a red card and then yeah, you just have that one one sort of sentence explanation to the re- or to the captain from the referee and, and that's all you get so I think there is scope to come out afterwards and explain these decisions more than more than we do. People have always said that that opens up the referees to criticism, but like they're getting criticized plenty social- as it is. Exactly, that's it. Open up social media in the middle of any game, and all the Fiji one was always going to be bad because Fiji are everybody's second team. So everybody in the world who isn't Welsh wants Fiji to win that game. So there was always going to be a big reaction to that. But like they're getting so heavily criticized anyway for what is a really, really difficult job. I think that opportunity to come out and explain what we are all looking at as inconsistencies would be a big help. And, you know, you're talking about the efforts made to speed up the game. Like, all these games are taking two hours. I understand there were water bricks uh, because of the temperatures, but, like, 
is it speeding up the game enough? For me, World Rugby is always looking at the wrong ways to speed up the game. Yeah, I'm not sure how to make a you know a whole pile quicker, to be honest, given the, the, the nature of it. The Matthew Carley one is interesting. Obviously, no bunker. The bunker doesn't exist to kind of mitigate against what Matthew Carley did. And anyone who's ever watched him in Champions Cup or Six Nations or the Gallagher Premiership, he, he's very efficient. Like, that's why it's so busy. He'd usually be maybe going very quickly to cards because, you know, some of the English referees with kind of legal backgrounds are, are often very efficient and quick to, to come in with the cards. That's why it, it kind of was baffling, I think. Um, at the time, Luke. In terms of just the England Argentina game generally, the, the George Ford piece with those drop goals in the first half, a, a great throwback. I think there were only eight drop goals in the last World Cup. We've already had three from him alone, and two of them were absolute peaches. And one of them, I actually didn't realize in real time how far it was. It was like Johnny Sexton's against France. Almost it was so far out. And it's funny now at the end of the game. There's all this rejoicing about his drop goals in the English and the potential blueprint going forward. The reason he had to go back so far was because they were going nowhere and their attack was so stagnant that it was their only way of scoring. But it was just still a supreme out half play, to be fair to him. Ah, brilliant. Look, and we did talk about whether or not, you know, the Farrell thing was a bit of a blessing in disguise because he did look a little bit sharper than Farrell, I thought, in some of the warm up games. Not that England looked that sharp at all, but he just did look a little bit better. Their attack did flow a little bit better, um, you know, when he was uh, in, in that 10 role. So. Um, very pleased with him, as they always used to say with Johnny uh, with Johnny Wilkinson. You know, you um, you can't defend the air. I believe was the was, was the kind of commentary around that. And in fairness, that was what proved to be the case, as you said. Their their, their attack still leaves leaves a lot to be desired. Um, you know, the other side of that coin is that I was very very disappointed with Argentina. I thought they looked very very flat. Um, you know, couldn't really make the 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 difference pay over the over the eighty minutes. Um. You know the sorry the, the numerical advantage sorry and and just looked flat. I was expecting a lot more from them. So we wait and see if there is a bit of a a, a rebound in performances for them. I still expect those two you know, countries to go through. I just thought it'd be the other way around and Argentina on top and England second. Um, but uh, pleasing for England. I mean, it's been a tough tough month for them for actually a little bit longer. I mean, Six Nations was tough for them as well, but just all the media attention has been so, so negative over, over there. And I think they'll be really pleased to, to have got off to a good start to the competition, knowing still that there's there's room for them to improve. You mentioned the attack. Still just very... It's, they're just a tough watch, aren't they? It was one four on two that they butchered so thoroughly that Johnny May like ran out as if it was a first down in American football. They just crabbed across <laughs> the pitch and then he just like stepped over the line and it was like, that was a, a certain try if you just squared up and given the ball. Yeah, I agree. It's, their attack is still shocking. You know, even looking at some of the clips that have been that have been up on social media about them, you know, post-game um, and just how, how flat the attack has been, I think they're having a problem with their spacing as well, Will. I mean, we talked about, you, you mentioned there, you know, squaring up, and these seem like kind of basic things for an international rugby player. Let me assure you, they're not. It's a pretty tricky game, international rugby, but still, you'd expect England to, to execute, and they have some quality players that should be able to go ahead and do that. But I think they're having basic problems with their shape. Uh, I think that's probably fair. I think most people watching them w- would be able to say the same thing because they're just not creating enough opportunities, enough decisions for the defensive teams to, to make. And they're co- you know after a certain number of phases, they seem to become kind of stuck in the mud a little bit and can't seem to generate any kind of pace uh, again. And that's why it was probably more necessary for George Ford to go to the air. Um, so look, hopefully, you know, from a spectator point of view, watching England, that that's not what they have to keep doing. But if look from an effectiveness point of view, if he can continue to deliver something like that, that's that may be where they have to go to get the results. Um, and they do have a kind of pack um, that will cause teams trouble. I think there's enough experience there and quality um, that they could, you know, make any match close. And if he can go ahead and do that and put them in positions around the pitch, they could be trouble for for a team. But um, 
my initial thoughts on the game afterwards were that Argentina just didn't show up as well. That was a real key part of why they've why they've won the game. Hmm. I did think Maro Atoje had one of his better performances in a, in a good while. Since, you know, kind of looking back to his best. And Jonathan, it's funny, like the George Ford performance is was so good that it looks like we're going to be going back to Ford Farrell again. You know, take, you know, dusting off that old playbook because Farrell, you, you would think, will definitely be back in the team. I don't think I don't see how they could drop George Ford after he gave Steve Borthwick his first signature victory as England head coach. And maybe to a laggy then outside them at number 13, kind of like that's what they ended up playing in the World Cup final last year or last time out. But, you know, that would be an interesting uh, selection talking point. Yeah, no, 100%. It's fascinating for that very reason that Luke talks about. Like George Ford played brilliant situational rugby in taking those decisions to knock over the three points. But it was situational in the sense that, yes, they were down to 14, but also in the fact from the fact that they weren't going to get any more than three points from any of their attacks because they never looked like scoring a try. And you'll not be able to do that against a better team. Like there is a reason why we have seen this massive, massive shift really over the last 10 years of people trying to score tries rather than take penalties. That's why we've sort of seen the drop goal as an art die out in the game. It's because people don't want to settle for three points, but England, as they're currently constituted, had to. And as I say, against better teams than Argentina, they'll get less opportunities to do that. So they won't be able to build the score in the same way. Like for me, I suppose probably aside from uh, the inconsistent officiating, which is what we all really hoped didn't come to define this World Cup, like the biggest disappointment of the weekend for me was that Argentinian performance. Like we sat here last week and not because I thought they were like Argentina of 07 or Argentina of 2015. Like I said that I thought that they were going to get to a semi-final basically by virtue of being the adult in the room on that side of the draw. Like, and it's just not going to happen with that those types of performances. Like, it was a, a really, really surprising no-show in a lot of ways. Like, once the red card happened, they just seemed to lose their heads, and they didn't know uh, they didn't know how to play that game. And it was uh, for a team that had sort of been, as I say, hyped up of a fashion going into this tournament. Like, they were the teams out of all the teams that were in action this weekend that you were looking at being like. There's an awful lot of questions coming out of that first weekend. Yeah, now it's kind of Argentina Samoa, which is kind of a key game for Argentina Japan. Whereas last week, you know, there was you know it could have been England who do play Japan this weekend, which could be maybe close, but they certainly look like they're in the box seat to top that pill. Just before we kind of start wrapping up, Luke, anything else from the opening weekend? The Cotteroy, we didn't really talk a whole pile about France New Zealand in the end. Like France, are they kind of top of the World Cup power rankings? Would you say after that opening week? Yeah, I think they had the toughest fixture, didn't they? So, yeah. uh, and all the pressure that went with it. The pressure looked uh, like it was weighing on them. I did think that the first half in particular, the expectations, that, or maybe it was just because it was the opening game and maybe it'll kind of ease off a bit. But it did make me think about potentially later in the tournament when the big games come back to Paris and the prize comes more tangible. There's a lot of pressure on them. And I did think it took them a while to get kind of used to that kind of level of, I don't know, hype or atmosphere or, or what have you. Maybe I'm uh, overthinking it. I had no doubts actually after, weirdly. I just thought uh, what I liked about it was that I think they have a few players coming back into the team, which I think make a difference. I liked Ramos's kicking. He had one wayward one, I thought, that was that was a poor kick. The rest of them were really, really good. He looks solid over the ball, confident. Uh, and when he's on form, I think he's probably one of the best kickers in the world. Um and, and then you ally that to the to the pack. You've got some serious finishes out wide. You've got Dupont creating that magic. I uh, wasn't as sure about, you know, how Jalabert would show up, but he was pretty solid too, I thought, Will. Um, 
and they didn't try too hard. That's always the concern. I think about it with a, you know an opening weekend from the home team, all the expectation going in, probably as favourites really or very close to favourites. Um, you wonder do they try and play a bit too much rugby? They didn't do that. I thought they trusted their defence. You saw them kicking to, to to New Zealand. I thought they kicked out very well as well at times. It looked to me like they learned a little bit from that Irish game uh, where there was ball and play for a massive amount of time and just the big men in their pack suffered during that game in the Aviva. Um, looked to me like after a few kicks, uh, you could see New Zealand were trying to keep it in play France decided at times, no, do you know what? Let's just get this thing off the park. And they've got a very, very strong uh, line out, I think, as well as a very good kicker and a very strong scrum. All the kind of key attributes to, uh, sorry, allied with, I should, of course, mention a pretty strong defence, bar a pretty shaky start um, off that set play. They've got all the ingredients similar to a South African team that if they don't want to play a very expansive game, they can still be successful in the competition. They just have a better kicker than South Africa. So um, I'm pretty bullish on France after the opening weekend. Um, I still think Ireland are a threat in this competition and can do it. Um, but I just need to see a little bit more. It's so hard to know against a, a Romanian team where Ireland really stand. Um, they did what they had to do, but you know I think we find out more this weekend and next weekend um, how, how Ireland are sitting. Yeah, I'll give you the last word then, Jonathan, on that opening fixture before we wrap up. Another hour almost done. No mention of Antoine Dupont. Let's try to make this a regular <laughs> feature the longer it goes in the tournament. Yeah, Luke sort of said a lot of what I think about uh, France there and obviously with uh, Dante, we think to come back as well. So I think from that opening fixture, France, we saw that they are who we thought they were. We saw that New Zealand are who we thought they were, but probably just exaggerated versions so to me we talked about France France's depth and their ability to uh, counteract the injuries and we saw that in spades probably more so than we expected especially once they sort of got that Jonathan Dante less defence um, sorted out and then New Zealand as well because you know obviously the injury to Lomax and it was probably with the introduction of Lomax and De Groot after that Ireland series, that's really where we saw a big difference in New Zealand post the uh, post the summer tour, where Ireland obviously beat them on uh, on home soil. So I thought Lomax was going to be a big miss, but then we saw the issues on the other side of the scrum. We saw that uh, you know Antonio had such a huge uh, such a huge game, and I just think to me New Zealand look as we as we suspected that they just don't have the horses like they've got they've got the back line and you saw a little bit of that Joe Schmidt influence coming through sometimes but I just don't think they have the pack to be considered alongside Ireland France and South Africa as I say we probably suspected that going into the tournament but I think that that opening night really sort of confirmed that in our heads well, it was certainly a very exciting and interesting opening weekend of World Cup action. That's all we have time for on today's show. I'd like to thank Jonathan and Luke for joining me. And please vote in our latest Spotify poll. Now, that's whether Johnny Sexton should start against Tonga this Saturday. In the meantime, you can subscribe to the podcast on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. And make sure to listen to the latest podcast with Sinead, Rudd and Keen. So until next time, thanks for listening and goodbye. Listen and follow The Left Wing wherever you get your podcasts.